Excuse me, Mr. Sloan. Mm. I have your next loan applicant, uh, Ms. Kellner. Oh, yeah, great. it's Barb Kellner. Yeah, have a seat. How can I help you today? Well, uh, it's Barb Kellner to start out, and uh, right. I'm pretty interested in getting my hands on one of your small business loans uh -huh. from my piece of business so I can take a check or like a little stack of cash. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> well, now, first things first, we're going to we're gonna have to fill out an application, all right? Okay, good. Then I get my piece of loan. Is that what happens? Uh, no, no. Oh, then then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll review your business plan, actually. Oh, okay, yeah. good. Because yeah. I got a good pizza plan. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, man. Well, I, yeah, I hope That's so, because there's a lot of pizza places already in town, so it better oh, no. be good. No, no, I, I don't want to have a pizza place. Yeah. I want to own and operate my own pizza eating business. Because you can <laughs> sign that check to Barb Kellner. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, you, you expect us to give you money so that you can eat pizza? <laughs> Coming up on Nurse Talk. Nurses celebrate landmark new rules on prevention of workplace violence in hospitals. Last year, California became the fifth state to allow medical aid in dying. We'll take a look at the progress of that bill. All this and more today on Nurse Talk. Welcome to Nurse Talk. I'm Casey Hobbs, and in for Shane Mason is Sari Markowitz. Sari, welcome. Glad to have you with us today. Thanks, Casey. I think I'm glad to be here. We'll check in with you later. <laughs> okay. That clip was the one and only Melissa McCarthy, whom I absolutely love. We like to start out with a good laugh. So, Siri, I understand you had your own radio show in New York. Is that right? Well, yes. It's called Voices You Never Want to Hear on Radio. <laughs> but seriously, I'm just doing this to help out. Your producer called and said you were looking for someone. So, here we are. Okay, then, Siri. We'll find out more about you later, but I guess we'll better start the show. You ready? Absolutely. Let's go. In a moment, we'll talk with RN Jane Sandoval about the groundbreaking new rules the state of California has implemented to protect nurses and healthcare workers from workplace violence. I think our listeners will be stunned at the frequency at which violence in healthcare setting occurs. And Casey, later, we'll share a recent interview with Matt Whitaker about California's medical aid in dying legislation. Matt is the California State Director of Compassion and Choices, the organization leading the state and national campaigns to pass end-of-life option legislation. Violence against registered nurses in hospitals is a chronic problem in the United States. First attacked by a patient at a Southridge hospital is showing off her scars in hopes of preventing it from happening again. Violence like this is on the rise. Though hard to watch, the video highlights an issue hospital workers deal with on a daily basis. A recent survey found the numbers have jumped 37% in the last three years. I've been a nurse for 33 years. I would say about the last 25 years, I've worked in the emergency department. Well, sometimes there's not enough security. Sometimes we're short staffed. And this does create a potentially hazardous condition. I have seen nurses that have been affected by workplace violence. Hit, kicked, punched, slapped. So violence against healthcare workers and registered nurses is not only for the obvious part, um, bad for nurses, it's bad for the patients. It's just bad for everyone. Workplace violence is a serious and growing issue affecting nurses and other healthcare workers and their patients. The California Nurses Association, National Nurses United, fought for Senate Bill 1299, which requires California health care employers to ensure a safe environment for patients and nurses by preventing workplace violence before it happens. 
CalOSHA developed a standard that is the model for the nation. California healthcare employers are required by law to have a comprehensive unit-specific workplace violence prevention plan in place by April 1, 2018. National Nurses United is fighting for the same standard of protection for all nurses. With us today to talk about this is RN Jane Sandoval. Jane, welcome and thanks so much for being with us. Hi, good afternoon. Hi, everyone. So, Jane, some of our listeners may be surprised to hear that nurses and healthcare workers are at greater risk of being injured on the job, even more so than police officers and prison guards. Talk about the types of violence that occur and why it's so prevalent in healthcare. Well, first of all, as you know, the world is changing. Isn't that's just one little <laughs> sentence to kind of summarize? There's a lot of anger out there. Yes. And and nurses, you know, it's still a predominantly female profession, first of all, even though the demographic is changing. People come to the hospital unhappy, unhappy outcomes, unhappy when they get there, so with themselves and their visitors. So we happen to be the targets that are available and be subject to the violence occurrences that happen in the hospital. So have you seen the trend get worse over the years? Oh, absolutely. It's gotten worse. And I myself, I'm an emergency room nurse. And what I've seen also is, because also I work in San Francisco, I've seen police officers bring in sometimes violent patients or sometimes just troubled patients with psychiatric issues. That actually puts us at risk to people to have some violent tendencies. And it's not to criminalize these people, but it's like they get brought from the street or whatever environment they're from, and they get left in the emergency room and we're left to fend for ourselves with their issues. Right. You're left to deal with that imminent crisis that's occurring. Correct. So what types of violence are we seeing? Can you just talk about some of the things that have occurred? Oh, sure. Um, when I think when people think of violence, the first thing that they really think of is getting the obvious hit or kicked or some kind of hand-to-hand violence or, you know, person-to-person violence. There's so many more facets to that. We get verbally abused all the time. And it's not just nurse and patient. It's their visitors, too. There's also workers on workers. And then being subject also to, because, I, as I mentioned, I work in an emergency room, we're exposed to other people that come in because it's kind of like an open door. Yes. So, you know, we're kind of like, and we can't deny care. So it's kind of an expressway, so to speak. So... We are a convenient pathway for people to pass through. And it sounds like a domino effect. It happens so quickly. Yeah, it can be, and it's not like that every day, but but potential is always there. Absolutely. So how long has it taken to bring the employers around on this issue? Oh, um, multiple, multiple years. I'm, I myself, I've been an emergency room nurse for 25 years, and we've always taken little classes and in services and how to recognize escalating behavior. And that's all very nice, but it's not enough. There needs to be more training, and it needs to not just be nurses, too. There's security, and there's other personnel. It's not just nurses. We have registration. We have all kinds of employees that are exposed to these hazards. So can you speak a little bit about the California standards that have just been made mandatory? The California standards mandates that the employer must have preventions for workplace violence in place. And this was to have been, you know, effective April 1st. They had to have some kind of standard. So I've seen after, 
you know, April 1st, just coming to work and looking at the way that we do triage when a person comes in and they come with their chief complaint, we have our standard questions that we always ask them, and now we're asking and doing an assessment of of violent tendencies, which I think is a good start. But one of the good things that California nurses have put through that when these workplace standards are put in place, they are supposed to seek the input of the bedside nurse, which is super important because we're the ones that are out there. We're the ones that are out there assessing and we're living it. When they implemented this new questioning in the triage plan, I don't remember, I was not asked to, so I don't know who they asked. They must have asked a nurse or probably a manager, but it does make me raise an eyebrow. But the standard is they have to comply and have nurses input in the Mm -hmm. prevention plan. So I guess it's still ironing out the kinks, but at least they started it. But that's one of the things that makes it unique is also that we, they are required to get our input. So what type of facilities do the standards apply to? Hospitals, it applies to general acute care facilities, psychiatric hospitals, all hospital-based outpatient clinics and off-site operations within the license of the health facility. In other words, if they have a clinic across the street, that would apply skilled nursing facilities, hospice facilities, home health care and home-based hospice, emergency medical services and medical transport, drug treatment programs, in the incarcerated and correctional detention setting. So, Jane, are there plans to make these standards mandatory in every state? I think that, that there's a push for a national standard. So ensuring sufficient numbers of trained staff that are available and able to respond, in your institution, are they working on that? I think that they're working on it. The beauty of California nurses, we're very proactive as opposed to reactive. What I've seen, because I've been a nurse for a while, I think corporations are more like reactionary. They are kind of a wait and see. So we will see how things develop. So Jane, could you give us a little bit more information on prevention measures that the employers will now have to follow? They're supposed to have a plan in place. And what I've seen just from a nursing point of view is that I've just seen a change in the way that we do our assessment and we are required to follow through with those questions. And what I've seen, because as I mentioned, we go through a triage and we're required to ask these questions or do an assessment. But if you go about your shift and you re-enter the medical, electronic medical record, it will get flagged and, and ask you, to acknowledge that you've read it. So that's a start. That's a good start. And I know for myself, I've been in the business for over 40 years and I've been attacked and, you know, uh, punched and slapped and had those things happen. What have you experienced, Jane? I've not been that severe, but the verbal abuse is certainly there. I've been grabbed at. I've had people make a swing for me, but um, luckily I've been able to either defuse it or, or back off. And I guess the fact of the matter is that it's not to criminalize anyone that's doing these things, because I know people have their issues, but it's just to make sure that the employer is accountable for making sure that preventions are in place. Not just nurse on nurse. We're very good about taking care of each other, but, you know, security, um, management. You're right. That's why we have these workforce regulations. I said, are they having adequate staff? That's number one. You know, are you leaving someone by themselves? I mean, even with security, are there enough people there? We get a lot of psychiatric patients, and even if they're not psychiatric patients, because I don't like to label that, we have people that are just angry, Mm -hmm. you know, and then we're targets, too. 
So it's just that people know that the violence is out there. It's not getting any better. In fact, it's getting worse. Mm -hmm. And it's just a little microcosm of the things that are going on outside. But if we can make things better for our workplace, then maybe they can expand this to not just hospitals, but to all workplace situations. Was there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Just so that everyone knows that collectively, as nurses, we can do this. And you don't have to be a union nurse to do it, but um, even non-union nurses can collectively join their professional practice committee and set standards forward and make their employers accountable for the, to uphold them to the standards that California nurses have created with this bill. Well, thank you so much, Jane, for being with us, and congratulations to you and all the nurses who've worked so hard to make this happen. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. We've been talking with RN Jane Sandoval about Senate Bill 1299, which requires California healthcare employers to ensure a safe environment for patients and nurses by preventing workplace violence before it happens. For more information about this topic, visit nationalnursesunited.org or nursetalksite.com. We'll be right back with more to come. You're listening to Nurse Talk Radio on Progressive Voices TuneIn and all of our broadcast partners. You're listening to Nurse Talk, where laughter is the best medicine. Our money-driven healthcare system has created a bunch of liars. Health insurance companies let you think your coverage is better than it really is. Doctors don't tell you how payment rules influence the care they provide. Drug companies exaggerate how effective their drugs are. Hospitals overstate what their services really cost. It doesn't have to be this way. We need to stop the lies. We need single payer. California One Care. California One Care. Full care for all for life. As an emergency department nurse, I see that people come in and they're already stressed out. And they have underlying issues that contribute to their behaviors. And so we're, our job is not to blame them or put the responsibility on them. The responsibility is for the employer to ensure a safe working environment. SB 1299 establishes clear mandates for workplace violence prevention. Under the new law, employers must develop plans to prevent workplace violence. We encourage nurses from other unions and also nurses that are not in unions to work together to hold management accountable. And it's not just nurses. We have security. We have patients. We have their family. We have visitors. We're all in this together and we deserve a safe environment. For more information, you can visit our website, nationalnursesunited.org forward slash C-A-W-P-V. Shane, I think you have sinusitis. Casey, you cannot diagnose, treat, or prescribe. Ugh, the bane of my existence, but you can as an NP, so what's the matter with me? Verbal diarrhea. Oh! Give me a second opinion. You talk too much. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> we cannot prescribe, diagnose, or treat, but Shane can, and it always hurts. <laughs> Welcome back to Nurse Talk. I'm Casey Hobbs, along with Sari Markowitz, sitting in for Shane Mason. And now here's our featured podcast. Some doctors in California felt uncomfortable last year when a new law began allowing terminally ill patients to request lethal medicines, saying their careers had been dedicated to saving lives, not ending them. Many healthcare systems design protocols for screening people who say they're interested in physician-assisted death, including some that meant to dissuade patients from taking up the option. 
But physicians across the state say the conversation that health workers are having with patients are leading to patients' fears and needs around dying being addressed better than ever before. They say the law has improved medical care for sick patients, even those who don't take advantage of it. California last year became the fifth state to allow people with terminal illnesses to request pills from their doctors to end their lives. In the first six months the law was in effect, 111 terminally ill patients ended their lives that way, state officials said. We're talking about medical aid in dying, which has been practiced in six states for a combined 40 years, and within those states, not a single case of abuse or coercion, nor any criminal or disciplinary charges have been led, not one. With us today is Matt Whitaker, California State Director of Compassion and Choices, the organization that's leading the state in national campaigns to pass the End of Life Option Act. Matt, welcome back to Nurse Talk, and thanks so much for being with us. Ah, it's so good to be back. So, Matt, you were here last year right after the California End of Life Act became law. So talk about what's happened since that time. Sure. Well, it's been a a whirlwind uh, of a year with health systems and hospices all working to make sure that they are doing everything possible to make sure that their patients are supported through this decision. Uh, You know, physicians and nurses and social workers and chaplains all making sure that they're educated about this new option. And then, you know, the most important thing is that the people who have advocated for this law and have been asking for it in California are now having access to this. So we are hearing stories, you know, daily of people who uh, are in need of this option, are accessing this option, or even just beginning to have the conversations around this option in a more transparent, open, and honest fashion. And so, you know, over the last year, the law has been working as it was intended to be. That's great. We were really curious to see how this played out, and we'd like to hear a little bit more about your mission. So can you tell us about the mission of Compassion and Choices? Sure. So Compassion and Choices is the nation's oldest, largest, uh, most active nonprofit that works to improve care and expand choice at the end of life. And what that means is that we really believe that at the end of life, people should be, you know, the determiners of their own destiny. They should be in the driver's seat, and they should have all the options necessary to make sure that that's the case. And so we do that through a variety of means. We have an education arm that works to do public education, uh, both with presentations and partnering with, with healthcare systems and with community leaders and doing things like this radio show, for example. Uh, we have a support arm where we actually support individuals that are going through that process, both with materials and education that are available on our website, uh, but also with in-person support or over-the-phone support as they need it. And then we have an advocacy arm, which is where we advocate for these laws and, and others across the country that really promote good, person-centered, end-of-life care. And so we work to make sure that that's the case as well. That's so true. So why do you think there's so much angst about the End of Life Option Act? Well, you know, I think there's there's angst about the end of life in general, right? This yes. is a it's yeah. a topic that for for many of us brings about a lot of a lot of stigma or uh, a lot of discomfort because it's not something that we talk about widely in in the public sphere and and one that frankly our organization and I personally believe should be out there in the open. We should be talking more about death and dying and health care at the end of life. And this option being debated in a public sphere uh, really puts that forward. It's hard to ignore when these conversations are going on. And so I think for many people, there's a little bit of uh, discomfort around that. And there's also, 
discomfort with any new medical practice. You know, change is hard even when it's change for the positive. And so we've been working through that process a lot with healthcare providers and with members of the general public. The amazing thing that we've seen in the last year is that in having those conversations and in having this option be something that's debated publicly, people are really bringing death out of the closet and talking about uh, end-of-life care, individual wishes, and really uh, we're starting to move this conversation forward across the spectrum, not just with this option, but with all the options that exist at the end of life. You know, I work in hospice, and it's it's difficult because still uh, so many of our patients come to us or are referred to us within the last week of life, which doesn't really allow us to do much work with the patients and their families as far as accepting and moving through this process. So I wish that we had that conversation more frequently. Absolutely. Well, and you know, and that's that's the big goal, really, right, is that we're upstreaming these conversations as much as possible. And the amazing thing that I think the End of Life Option Act does, not only does it give those patients who need it this, this option that they need at the end of life, but it also, it's a value statement. It's a statement that says that the state of California believes that people should be in the driver's seat of their own health care all the way up till the end of life. And so, you know, hopefully these conversations begin being pushed more and more upstream, even when people are making early treatment decisions, so that they're really having a full picture of what all of their options are and they're understanding fully what each of those pieces means. You know, hospice still has this really unnecessary stigma about it where people think that it's only for people who are in their final days or hours, yes. when in fact hospice is this prime example of what medicine could be if it really were a whole person approach to caring for individuals, and it's available for such a long time and, and works best, as you said, when people have that time to process and to build relationships and to really focus on what type of values and goals they have for not how they're going to die, but how they're going to live in their last month. Yes. So um, we certainly are hoping that this conversation continues to move upstream. Well, it seems like a lot of Americans today want to die on their own terms, but a lot of them just have no idea how to accomplish that. So how do you think communication can be improved? You know, I think we have to empower people with information, you know, and we have to empower people with, with seeing this as relevant information and in, in a correct frame. And I think so often people are, are afraid to engage this topic, even as you said, when deep down they know that this is something that they want. They want to be in control at the end of life. They want to make sure that their own personal values are honored. But when those conversations come up, they're, they're ones that people don't really have the information on how to begin. So even doing something as simple as empowering people to talk to their families more about this or talk to their doctors and giving them some tools and some tips on how to go about that in a way that it's not sterile, it's not morbid, but it's really about teaching your family and your care team and those that are around you how how to love you in your last days and how to respect your wishes and how to uh, make sure that they care for you in a way that, that is in line with your own values and that they're not going to feel uh, guilt and remorse and regret about afterwards because it's been out there in the open for such a long time. And so, you know, we live in the information age where we're being bombarded with all kinds of different things that are pulling for our attention. But this topic, the end of life, is one that 
it resonates with every single human being. It's a moment that every one of us will encounter. It's something that we all owe uh, ourselves and our families uh, the time necessary to really educate ourselves and to advocate appropriately for ourselves. So I think we just have to continue to push forward this conversation and to continue to share our stories you know, with openness and vulnerability so that others can learn from the experiences that we've had. I so agree with you, Matt, and let's hope this conversation continues because you're right, every single person here will experience this and nobody gets away from it. So that's, it's been hard for me as a nurse and certainly as a hospice nurse to understand people's reticence to even have the conversation because nobody gets away from it. And it just seems like it's one of those things that you should talk about with your family at the dinner table um, to talk about what it is that's important to you and what it is that it's important at the end. So now let's talk about the amazing resources that Compassion and Choices has on their website. Sure. Well, you know, we always you know feel that information is power. So we try to get as much information out there as possible for all different scenarios. And so our website, CompassionAndChoices.org, it has frequently asked question sheets, fact sheets about every different option that exists for people who are at the end of life. We have videos where uh, doctors are telling patients how to communicate your needs with your healthcare team, where family members are sharing their perspective, where people are sharing their stories just across the whole spectrum of things. So we have resources upon resources there for uh, everything from advanced care planning to having a conversation about the End of Life Option Act. And something else that we have on our website now that's new since the last time we talked is that we've started a new initiative called Truth and Treatment that really aims to empower patients with the type of questions that they can ask to really get to the root of what type of care they're getting within their healthcare system. So I call it TurboTax for your doctor's visit. Uh, because you can go on there and answer a few simple questions, and in doing so, it'll give you questions that you should be asking. We have that paired with another tool called a trust card, which is a card that you can design and take to a new physician or a new care team that you're you're going to that says things like how you like to receive information, uh, whether there are family members who should be kept in the loop, uh, what your communication style is, all of these things to hopefully build a trusting and effective relationship as quickly as possible because in our fragmented healthcare system, it's really tough to get to that point when you're seeing so many different folks and oftentimes can feel like you're on a conveyor belt and you can't get off and you don't know how you got on. And so we're trying to give as many resources as possible, again, to make sure that people have information, but also real tools that you can take with you and feel like you're able to uh, to get what you need in those moments. You know, I can't say enough about your website, Compassion and Choices, because what I see in um, my community up in Northern California is a, a lack of this information. And also in the medical community, I have a brother who was recently diagnosed with um, stage four pancreatic cancer. And I feel that the medical community really did him a great disservice because they never, first, they never talked about his diagnosis openly with him. I had to have that conversation with him. And secondly, then they didn't offer him any, uh, so they offered him options around chemotherapy and radiation. But nobody ever said anything about the option to do to do nothing because really the cancer is so far advanced that the, the treatment options really aren't even going to prolong his life. They're just going to make his life more miserable. And yet that conversation wasn't had. 
uh, thank God he happened to have a sister who was is a hospice nurse, to have that conversation with him. And I had to have that conversation with the oncologist who was really reticent to talk to him about what was really going on. So I use your website, Compassion and Choices, regularly uh, to because it's one of those sites where people can get information about questions that aren't really answered anywhere else, I find. Absolutely. Well, and it's so great to hear that you're using our website, and that's what it's intended for. And, and you know, the, the story that you shared about your brother is, is not the exception. You know, as you said, it's the norm. Yes. Uh, it's oftentimes people, you know, get on this whole kind of uh, uh, treatment train almost, and there's never a conversation about benefit versus burden and uh, and what quality of life versus quantity of life might look like with any one of these different treatment options. And you know, while there have been great large initiatives that have thought to kind of change that and shift the, the power dynamic when it comes to health care and the people who are being cared for, we really see uh, any change coming about needing to be a patient-led change. And it needs to be that people are feeling empowered and able to ask those questions. And when patients begin doing that and we begin pushing back on this one-size-fits-all kind of care paradigm that's going on, we feel like we can change the culture of healthcare. But uh, we feel like that, that, that the really the way to do that is by external pressure and making sure that people have the tools necessary. So we're giving them those tools and we're encouraging people to do uh, just that. Absolutely. We've been talking with Matt Whitaker about end-of-life care and choice. Matt is the California State Director of Compassion and Choices. That's it for today. Thanks for listening and thank you to our executive producer, Patty Lockard, sound design and engineering, June Miller, and JMC Sound, Taylor Lockard Research and National Nurses United, and all the nurses on duty today, and of course, our listeners and guests. Take care and visit us at nursetalksite.com or like our Facebook page at Nurse Talk.